What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Jen Ortiz is my guest today, and she is the deputy editor of New York Magazine's The Cut. Known for its voicey, sometimes snarky, but very, very clever stories. And yes, she is going to share some of the stories behind the infamous Meghan Markle cover story. Now, before she worked at New York Magazine, she was the deputy editor at Cosmopolitan, and we both share having worked there, which was great to talk about. We are going to chat about the elusive behind-the-scenes role of an editor and what she looks for in the writers that she works with and their stories. In our conversation, Jen reveals one of her secret obsessions, which happens to be watching cooking videos on YouTube. And she highlights one particular guy, a Welshman, a vegan chef called Gaz Oakley, who now I am similarly obsessed with. I hope you love this episode. I think you'll hear how great Jen is and be asking her to be a return guest on the show. I want to share with everyone that this is Jen's first time on a podcast. Yes, yes. Go easy on me. <laughs> I think you're already going to be great. I can I'm tell. Clutching the chair. <laughs> Such a good laugh that will resonate over the airwaves. But I, I mean, I want to ask you so much about your entire life, career, and we'll go all over the place. Sure. But there's something so specific about the cut and it's that voice. Mm-hmm. It's that... Um, I like to think of it as the best friend kind mm. of know-it-all mm-hmm. who actually does know-it-all. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes you're like, really? Don't be harsh. <laughs> but then everything they say ends up being true. Right. right. I'm wondering like internally how, like what words do you put to that voice and how mm-hmm. do you help shape that mm-hmm. for the readers but also for the writers that you edit? Sure. We're big on writing the way we speak. So it should sound, yeah, it should sound like your friend. It should sound like your group chat, like, you know, happy hour with your friends out. We want it to sound conversational. 
while still smart and sharp. And, you know, when it's appropriate humor and a little bite, when it's not appropriate, you know, a a serious, non-condescending tone. Yeah, I guess in terms of what we tell writers, I think you know the cut voice if you're pitching a story to the cut and we're working together. And so you know that you could be a little voicey. We're not going to, we're usually not going to tone you down. We're going to try to get that a little bit more amplified in a piece and that you can have a little bit of attitude. We're not gratuitously mean or sort of biting just for the sake of it, but the writing on the cut should have a point of view and that should come through and that's going to come through through the voice. So I have to ask about the article that everyone read, the cover story mm-hmm. with Meghan like, Markle. Which one could that be? <laughs> and my thing is like, let's just get it out there now yes. because there's so many other great pieces and you have written and edit, you know, a lot of the more serious pieces. But let's go back to Meghan. <laughs> How involved were you in that piece and what were some of the discussions you can share about you know, sharing her story. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I, I sort of had like side saddle on that piece is maybe how I would describe it. So our editor-in-chief, Lindsay, who can just make miracles happen, made this happen and was in touch with Megan's team for a long time and, you know, got, got this huge idea to become reality. And so we talked about it a lot during that sort of ideation process and the idea that this might be and who would be good to write it and what are the things we'd want covered and and that sort of, you know, pre-assignment thinking. And then our features director at New York Magazine, Genevieve, who is the sort of like editor you dream to work with and learn from um, was the main editor on the piece. And she edits Allison Davis, who wrote it, also amazing. And they were primarily the ones working on that piece. But then Lindsay had me do some top reads later on in the process and like, you know, give my opinion on what was in there, any thoughts on what I would change around, anything that we felt that was missing, et cetera. But it was amazing to see come together and still sort of unbelievable that it happened. When I read it, I'm like, there's the weird pause. Because I'm like, (laughs) that article, ooh. I'm just shocked that Megan said, like, the quotes are real. Mm -hmm. And so, huh, like, what a (laughs) gift for a writer, but also trying to piece together someone's reality Mm-hmm. that has become so strange. Right. But her story is that she's so down to earth mm-hmm. and it just felt like her own quotes showed quite a different story. Sure, yeah. And I think, you know, Allison is very good at at pulling those sorts of moments out of people. I mean, it can be very uncomfortable to be interviewed. You're very aware of the fact that you're being interviewed. There is a recorder on the table. You know, if the journalist has a notebook in their hand, you know that they're there to do a job and you're sort of unnerved by that as a subject. And Allison is really good at sort of removing all of that and really letting the subject feel really present and comfortable and able to open up and let the guard down. And I think that's what happened in that interview. And, you know, I can't 
imagine a person with more reason to have a guard up than um, Megan. And Allison was able to, you know, help chip away at that and make her feel comfortable enough to really open up and show a lot of her life. I mean, to get to go to after school pickup, that just feels like a, a moment you can't even wish for as an editor, as a reader, as a writer to happen because it would seem so impossible. And, you know, it was possible. Absolutely. I'd love to know more about your journey as an editor, because, you know, from the outside, like so many things, it's a dream job. And I think it's Mm -hmm. actually a dream job from inside the job, Mm -hmm. from what it sounds like. But, you know, what was that journey for you? Was writing always something that you were drawn to? It was, and it sort of wasn't. So in college, I I went to Yale where there was not a journalism major. And unless your chosen career path was going to be more school, some sort of grad school track or finance or law or medicine, there wasn't a ton of like, or at least I didn't feel there was a ton of creative guidance for what you might want to do. And so I thought I wanted to work in media and I did, but I didn't really know how to do it or like what would sort of be the next step. And I worked on some college magazine and I interned a little bit at a small, very, very small, too small to mention publication. So when I graduated, I was sort of lost and didn't really know what the next step would be. And it was 2008 and the economy collapsed all around me. Um, And I was very lucky to be from New York City. And so I was back here with my parents looking for a job. And I landed in PR and worked in a small public relations firm for a few years thinking, well, this was another side of media I thought would be like sort of fun and cool and glamorous and that like sort of running around all the time when like a chicken with your head cut off sort of way. I'd watched uh, the MTV show Power Girls, I think it was called, (laughs) and thought it was like, wow, how cool. It was not so cool. (laughs) And it was very hard work for very little payoff and very little satisfaction for me. It's, you know, other people have a different experience. But I learned pretty soon on, even though I stayed there, that I was kind of on the wrong side of those phone calls, of the pitch calls that I was making. And it wasn't until a friend said sort of, sort of like casually and randomly, it was like, oh, I'm sure I was complaining about work for like the umpteenth time. She's like, why don't you go to journalism school? There are a lot of people at my job who went and she was working on the business side of Business Insider at the time. I was like, oh, I hadn't it was sort of right there in front of me the whole time and I hadn't considered it. And it's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And I think really the next day I like looked up the application deadlines for (laughs) NYU and I was like, okay, um, I have have a a week. week. (laughs) (laughs) I really, I think maybe, maybe I had two weeks. I had to get like sort of special permission to submit my um, GRE scores late because I wasn't going to take it in the next few weeks. I didn't have one like scheduled, but yeah, it was really, it was really that time at NYU. I did a year and a half long program that was then called the magazine writing program. I think now it's like magazine and digital writing or something like that. And it was a both a break from working, like again, very lucky to get to live with my parents at the time and just really focus on like learning this craft that I was really interested in, but hadn't had the time to commit that kind of practice and thinking about and studying it. And, and yeah, and then it it was very, very soon into the first semester that I was like, oh, 
this was it. Like this is the, I never had that feeling of like, I'm at the place I'm supposed to be. This is the thing I should be doing. And that was it. And even then, I don't think I knew that editor was going to be the, you know, place where I'd end up. I think everyone goes to a grad program like that thinking they're going to be the next big magazine writer, (laughs) or at least hoping to be. And so writing was the thing that I was, you know, had at my finish line. But I think the experience of working after that program, and maybe even when I was interning, but I think it was when I was properly on staff somewhere that it was like, oh, editing doesn't mean you don't write. You're just not, your byline's not on it, but you're helping craft the story and you're doing all the things that you like about writing without the blank page at the beginning, (laughs) which is really nice. (laughs) Well, going back to that first PR job, Mm -hmm. you know, you were pitching and you said that you wanted to be on the other side of those Mm -hmm. phone calls. What did you learn about pitching? Like Mm -hmm. what worked and what do you look for in a succinct pitch now? Mm -hmm. Well, pitching as a publicist, I was terrible at, (laughs) I will say. I have a very clear memory of calling, I don't remember who it was, but someone at the Wall Street Journal, and my pitch was just terrible. It was a private jet company, and they were really pushing us on the idea of pushing out the narrative that, oh, actually, if you charter a flight with a few other people, it's it's flying green because you're not flying by yourself. It's like, oh, have you have you heard of a commercial flight? <laughs> what are you talking about? And I was, you know, sort of like nervously stumbling out this pitch to, you know, whatever poor soul answered my call. And it was just click, like not even a no thanks, goodbye. So I don't know that <laughs> I learned I learned what not to do. Maybe it sounds like the lesson too is that if you didn't believe Mm -hmm. what you were pitching. It was very hard for you to pitch. And I think I would be the same, Mm -hmm. but I think other people can take, you know, totally dried beans and be like, totally. And like there it's a talent. Totally. Totally. I think what it did teach me that I then carried on is sort of a, I could just like click into a certain mode. Like we had to work a lot of events. It was a, a small PR firm that did, restaurants, events in the Hamptons, which like ruined my summer every summer, Um, like various parties and galas throughout the year. And I would have to work the door. I would have to shuffle around, you know, various guests to make sure that they got a photo on the red carpet or like force the page six reporter who was there onto like whoever the client was to try to get something in. I often was assigned the task of running behind Bill Cunningham to make sure that he would like get the names of the important guests at the gala or, you know, whoever the client was to make sure you got a picture of them, which was, you know, obviously one of the thrills of the job is very exciting to, to see him in action. But I was able to just sort of focus on the job, sort of like a a conscious autopilot. It's almost like a performance, like here I go, smile on my face. Like every conversation is super like chipper and yay. And in the back of my mind, I know what it is that I have to get done and I'm getting it done. And I can't sort of let any natural shyness or ego or anything get in the way of getting that job done. And it helps 
when reporting because it's the same sort of like, I can't be nervous about this because I have to do my job. So it doesn't matter if you're a huge celebrity. It doesn't matter if I'm going up to a stranger on the street and I otherwise would be so embarrassed. The adrenaline sort of washes all of that away. So that that has served me well. Oh, I love the way you <laughs> described that. I just felt like I was in that room seeing you dart <laughs> around. And I've I know that feeling mm-hmm. too. And it's like that, I mean, that fake it till you make it thing is totally. real. When I worked at Cosmo, mm-hmm. I had a boss, Joanna Coles, and I feel like she was so good at forcing us into situations mm-hmm. that she thought we were ready for and could handle, but mm-hmm. we didn't know ourselves. Yeah. And she there was an element of enjoying the like sink or swim <laughs> moment. And if you you know, impressed her and right. managed. Right. She, they'd be like, hmm, <laughs> okay, you know, next, right. moving on, you know, to right. the next Right, rung. a little mental note there. Yes, like <laughs> clocked that. So then the, the next job mm-hmm. after grad school, mm-hmm. what was that? I was an editorial assistant at GQ. Great, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, when I first got it and I – you know, was like single and on OkCupid. I remember a friend saying like, oh, that is just going to be the best opening line. Like, how cool does that sound? It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm hoping to get a little bit more out of it, but (laughs) I'll take that too. (laughs) That's so funny. I can talk a little bit about these different voices that publications have Mm -hmm. and then kind of where yours is in the middle of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think... It was a great place to start because you could be voicey at GQ and that was what you were being, if you were editing, what you were editing for. I was an editorial assistant under who was then the culture editor. And that was sort of like the area of, you know, coverage or the sort of beat that I thought I would be interested in. So it felt like a perfect sort of boot camp into what I would eventually end up doing. And that meant watching a ton of screeners of things, you know, looking through a book if it was assigned to me for a small item in the culture pages. The grunt work wasn't too bad. It was like doing expenses and booking travel for the editor's writers who were on assignment somewhere. But it was a place where I I sort of like learned what cultural reporting meant and what went into it and sort of like maybe sharpened my eye towards what made something worth covering and and thinking of ways to cover it that aren't so straightforward. The culture pages then were sort of like a a package with various points of entry every month. And so you might have like a five second Q&A and then a long book review and a little humor item of some sort. Like it was a lot of content in very small space and a couple pages of the front of book. So it also taught me how to think that way, how to sort of like package ideas and think about um, sort of like quirky ways to cover culture at various lengths that doesn't all have to be a review or a recap or a straightforward interview. You wanted to have a point of view and you wanted it to be sharp. You could be a little bit meaner at GQ than I 
could be at other places I worked after, but knowing how to sort of like take it there. And then it's, it's always easy to scale down a voice and it is to scale it up. And so I was lucky to learn from a place in the beginning where the voice was pretty scaled up and the point of view was sort of um, maybe brash in a refined way. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you can tell we have an editor on our hands, everyone. So what you said is interesting about learning how, A, what culture reporting mm-hmm. is, but also what the culture is. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to bring us to the moment we're in, mm-hmm. which feels overwhelming and sure. at the cut, what happened when the abortion ban mm-hmm. news came came on. And obviously mm-hmm. that wasn't a shock. Right. But how you report for women and people of any gender who mm-hmm. it affects in different states, mm-hmm. like you're covering nationally, internationally. Right. I know in Australia there's a huge readership. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, what, like what were the type of conversations in that like writer's room mm-hmm. in quotes or, you know, mm-hmm. editorial meetings about how do we cover this responsibly? Mm-hmm. Sure. So when the opinion was leaked, gosh, now I forget what, we were on, I think it was, I think we were doing live coverage of the Met Gala. Um, I know it was, it was a red carpet event and we were on late. So we happened to all still be online and on Slack together when the draft was leaked because it was after, you know, work hours. And it was one of those things where you know it's coming, but until you see it and you see the words that are deciding the fate of people and and harshly and unforgivingly and unjustly, um, you don't expect to feel the way you do. And I think it really took everyone a beat to go through the the feelings personally and then sort of pivot to that that next morning of like, okay, all systems go, what are we going to do? At the time, we were already working on what became the cover story of an issue in May that was, you know, this magazine could get you an abortion um, or help you get an abortion. It was a big package that we had underway that the conversations had started for a few months prior. I remember when I first joined the team at a print pitch meeting, I had floated the idea of, and this was like many months before, we should do something that's just like, assumes that we are going to lose Roe. Like it feels like everyone knows that's what's happening. So let's stop like talking about that and do some sort of service piece. Like, you know, how, how do you have an abortion at home? Like what does a self-managed abortion look like? What are ways to access that kind of care if it's illegal to, and, you know, et cetera. And we talked about the idea and hadn't really put sort of structure around it. And then, Very soon after our power editor, Katie Thompson, joined, she had a similar idea that was more fleshed out. And she's like, what if we do a interactive service guide, a map that has everything you could possibly need? And from there, we further developed the idea. We had many meetings with the product team at New York who were very patient with us <laughs> and and also pulled off a miracle. We were really working on that finder tool up until the last minute before the issue came out. So the, the planning and the reporting for that was really already underway. And we also, you know, were editing and assigning out the pieces that ran alongside that guide. In print, it was a 
sort of like phone book looking guy that had everything you needed to know about all of the abortion clinics in every state and what the laws are in every state and sort of like an everything guide to abortion care in the United States right now. And online, it is a live ever updating tool where you type in your zip code or your state if you're a minor and how many weeks along you are, and it will give you what your options are in your state and what your options are in the closest state where you can actually access care if your state completely bans abortion. And there are also telemedicine options on there. So when the decision came out, the question was, should we rush this? Like, how soon can we do this? And we were only a few weeks out. I'd have to look at the calendar, but it wasn't, we weren't too far behind when the issue actually came out. Luckily, for the sake of myself and the other editors, the product team was like, absolutely not. (laughs) Like, this is not ready. We cannot roll this out until the date that we plan to roll it out, which gave us a little bit of a breather. And And the magazine- do it responsibly. Right, right. For sure. For sure. And the magazine still had, you know, it's New York Magazine. So they have- we have the best writers sort of at our fingertips and they were still able to put out an issue in between the leak and our abortion issue that still addressed the fall of Roe and, and what it all meant and what the, what the moment felt like. So, so yeah, that was the conversation. It was sort of like, Oh God, I can't believe it's happening. Even though we've literally been planning an issue around this, knowing it's going to happen. And is it worth trying to rush this out? or sticking to our plan and figuring out other coverage that we can do up in the moment, which we did. And the cut did a ton of stuff around it, around, you know, the feeling that everyone was feeling, the reactions that people were having, and and what this all meant and what it was going to look like when this was no longer a leaked draft and this was going to be the law of the land. To answer your question about how we cover this for such a broad audience, I mean... I think it's something we just are figuring out kind of every day. There is there is so much to cover and it's figuring out what what stories aren't being told that we can tell well and that we have the access to or we have the idea around, you know, how can we tell this story in a way that is both informative but isn't repetitive and hasn't been told elsewhere and can be helpful or just shine a light on an experience that maybe we haven't told before or we think needs more shine. And it can be really overwhelming because we could just do abortion stories and we still wouldn't do every story that's out there or every injustice that's happening. Well, and how do you balance that? I want to know what is resonating with readers right now. Mm -hmm. Look, I remember as an editor, you would had these stories that you felt were so important Mm -hmm. and that you know, would really, I remember writing pieces about the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. I mean, like what 25-year-old wants to read about, (laughs) you know, how they can finally get health insurance or like 27, I guess, if you're after your, you know, parents cover. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we do that? But you'd write these pieces and hope Mm -hmm. that it would provide information for Mm -hmm. people that really needed it. And then, I added the astrology pages, you know, and the info would come back and it would be like most popular page, you know. (laughs) And I was like, yes, it's a page that everyone reads every month or every, you know. But 
I also edited the astrology pages yes. at Cosmo. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know about you, but I once, we had a really fabulous astrologer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was still Aurora Tower, mm-hmm. but, you know, there was a moment where, you know, she emailed and she was like, well, you know, the copy looks a little different in the magazine <laughs> than what I sent in. <laughs> and I would edit right? it, you know. Sometimes a lot, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed, mm-hmm. but also I wanted to make it, you know, relevant mm-hmm. to the reader. But as a side note, maybe <laughs> maybe some Hollywood people are listening. I thought it would be a great movie. Oh my gosh, we could co-write it <laughs> about an editor who, you know, has all those serious stories they want to mm-hmm. tell at the magazine, mm. and they're assigned editing the astrology page. Oh, funny. And whenever, like, she really heavily edits the astrology pages Mm -hmm. like very much so and Mm -hmm. I thought like in real time Mm -hmm. we'd see how it'd follow like four readers Mm. and they would follow their signs instructions so much and the editor's words would change their lives Uh uh-huh like in which this has that, rom-com this is a good premise written all over we it we are like developing <laughs> this in real time yeah it's very um it's like astrology means how to lose a guy in 10 days <laughs> exactly okay that's the pitch <laughs> but i'm like now i've totally lost my train of thought because i'm <laughs> working on our production deal in my head um so mm-hmm. leaving that aside what stories are resonating with mm-hmm. your readers mm-hmm. right now from, you know, those serious topics mm-hmm. to the kinds of articles that we all click on because mm-hmm. it's like a relief read? Right. Well, I think for those sort of serious moments and for things like, you know, writing about abortion, it is, it's the stories that help readers process, I think. And it's whether you're processing it emotionally, like afterwards, I think it was after the leak, we did what we call a cut chat. And we, you know, get a bunch of people on the staff in the same Slack channel. And we talk through how we're feeling about something or we did one for Don't Worry Darling. So that one was really just like, oh, wow, us just like shouting questions at each other. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's, it's the stories where, you know, it's less the here's what happened, but let's go a little deeper. So here's what happened, but here's how that fits into, you know, the context that we're in, or um, here's how that will impact you. Here's what you need to understand about it, or what you need to understand about what the impact is on other people. I think it's, it's really guiding the reader through these big historical moments or just big news moments. And, and unpacking kind of what it all means. And I think that that does that very sort of like pointed point of view, a human is writing this with feelings sort of approach. And that voice that we have is, is what makes readers want to read those stories. And yes, it can be very hard to both cover serious topics in a way that, you know, a mass audience wants to read, but also just in like a very crowded space, you can get your news from, a lot of places, and we all have breaking news alerts on our phones from CNN, from the Times. So we're competing with that kind of, here's what just happened, news reporting. And so we need to take it a step further and, and it's here's what happened and here's why you should care or how, you know, you can 
how you can sort of process this news. And it's also showing the like human effects of news, right? So it's talking to, you know, right as part of that abortion package, we talked to a group of women about what it was like to get an abortion, you know, in in that last few weeks, in those last few months, um, you know, that sort of like right now, this is what it's like. And to get at the idea that it's it was already really hard for a lot of people to access this very, what should be very basic and universal care. In terms of what, I mean, our readers are reading, <laughs> like they can't they... get enough of that Meghan Markle cover. Oh, <laughs> I bet. And also, like, are the Kardashians just still a thing? <sighs> I suppose the they sigh. are. The sigh. I'm like relieved I, to hear the sigh because I'm like, are we still caring? But I feel right. like sometimes media is making us care. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. do people actually yeah. want this? Or is it something like some self-fulfilling right. loop? Right. Gosh, I don't know. Some some combination of all of the above, maybe. I think our uh, approach in terms of covering a celebrity like that is to, you know, sort of only cover a news item when we feel strongly about it, or it's just, we know that it's topic of conversation. We don't have to feel strongly about it. Like, this really matters that Kim has a skincare line, more so that like, well, we know this is going to be in the reader's life, and they're going to be curious about it. So... You know, we what, should cover this. Right. So, what, yeah, what do we have to say about it that is going to be helpful or entertaining to the reader? So sometimes that does include Kardashian <laughs> updates. I mean, when she was, you know, in Staten Island, that was very exciting for all New Yorkers and, <laughs> and readers. But, you know, I, I think it's sometimes it's not just the quick celebrity news hits, but the sort of like stepping back and and looking at a big pop culture moment that's happening and sort of like digging in a little deeper and thinking about the whys of it. Like for Don't Worry Darling, we had a, a piece go up about the Stepford Wives trope and why are we, you know, still doing it and yeah. still care about this idea. That feels so retro. Yeah, yeah. And same with the Marilyn Monroe movie, Blonde. We had, we had a piece that was just like, let her rest. <laughs> like, leave yes. this woman alone. Why is this still a thing? And then we had a piece go up that was sort of like unpacking the, the editor called it the deadly glamour of the movie. And that, you know, in order to interrogate this figure, and I say figure because it's not, we're not really interrogating the real Norma Jean behind the Marilyn Monroe, that the portrayal has to be so brutal and brutal and glamorous at the same time. So I feel like those are the things I think that readers expect from us that sort of like a take on something. Or to hold Hollywood to account, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. So Books coverage, obviously, is under your purview. So I would love to know if you've read anything recently Mm. that is just, you know, that you've loved and would, like, tell your best friends about. And then anything coming up that you're excited about? Yeah, I am. I'm reading at the moment Alive at the End of the World, the new poetry book from Saeed Jones. And I can't tell you the last time I read a poetry book. <laughs> I do. I, I like poetry, but it was never something um, that I would, you know, I would think to pick up a new book 
of poems and and read through the way I would fiction. And I am just such a huge fan of his writing and his poems are, I don't know, they just, maybe because I already know his voice and, you know, read his Substack and I'm such a fan, but I think also just the voice in them and the imagery and the way that thoughts are strung together in those poems just like sort of call out to me and are, they're both like a, a joy to read. Like you can kind of breeze through them, but at the same time, they also are kind of a slap in the face. Like they make you kind of like sit up a little straight in your chair and really think about what it was that you just read, but in a, you know, a good way. So I'm reading that at the moment. I read This Time Tomorrow a little while ago from Emma Straub, which I just loved and loved her writing. And, you know, it was one of those books where when you finally get to the end, you just lay it on your chest and cry for a little bit. Um, so yeah, and I'm I'm excited for actually a cookbook that is coming Ooh, out, yes. I think in January. And it's, I believe, like cookbook slash collection of essays. And it's from this writer, Brie Graham, who has a newsletter, which I read every Sunday. And her writing is just very kind of cozy. There's always a, a little moment of her writing through, you know, what's happened that week or where she's traveled or any complicated feelings she's feeling. And then there's a little bit of like a recipe that she's made herself that week, ideas for what you can cook during the week, but it, it's sort of tying the food writing and the essay writing together. And so I'm excited to see what that looks like kind of in longer form. So that'll be good. And else I have not picked up my copy, but intend to very soon of Bobby Finger's new book. I am a big Who Weekly fan and a general fan of his work and his writing and excited to see what his fiction looks like. Oh, and you just mentioned one of my obsessions, kind of <laughs> cooking and everything food related. Yeah. I wondered if you have a secret obsession that you can share with us. <laughs> a secret obsession that's food related? No, it could be anything, <laughs> like an interest. Oh, I'll give you a food related one because it came to mind since it followed that question. Okay, general secret obsession is watching... Um, like cooking videos on YouTube, which I think like a lot of people do. So it's not really that secret, but there are like particular channels that my partner Ian and I are like yes. very big fans of and watch as though it's like appointment television. Like when there is a new recipe drop, it's like, okay, don't watch this without me. Like, when are we going to watch this together on the TV? There are a few. So Gaz Oakley, they're all vegan because my partner is vegan. I'm, I like to say I'm vegan friendly. But Gaz Oakley is a chef from Wales who has a very popular YouTube channel and a couple of cookbooks. And he is, in addition to being very handsome, <laughs> very good at really changing your mind on what vegan food could be. And I've made a bunch of his recipes and we watch his videos all the time. And it's so funny because it's one of those things where if he walked in the room right now, it would be like Beyonce walking in the room. Like he is just like a celebrity to me and so exciting. Maybe he needs a profile. I mean, he really does. <laughs> okay. My last question, yes. what lights you up? Maybe you just answered it. <laughs> yeah. Gaz Oakley, no. Um, what lights me up? Would it be sort of cheesy to say, you know, like my dog's cooking. No. Like I love a really early morning on the weekends. Like 
when you feel you get that sort of like quiet time of the day just to yourself to do, you know, whatever. Maybe it's just lying in bed reading the newsletters you miss throughout the week or getting up and making coffee. It's just the world feels so quiet really early in the morning on a Saturday or a Sunday. And yeah, and my like two beautiful, stupid dogs. <laughs> and I say stupid with all the love in my heart. You can't teach them any tricks. They bark at everyone. They are very misbehaved, but they're adorable. <laughs> Jen, thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> I am going to kind of think of you on my early Saturday morning at that that moment. And I, yeah. I'm in the market for some dogs. <laughs> oh, oh, well. Well, if I can give a plug to Wise Animal Rescues, where we got our, our second dog, Patty, and they are great. And just always, I mean, you could see how you could quickly slip into how that could be your, you know, your secret obsession. <laughs> you just have tons of dogs. Every time they post a new rescue dog, we're like, is three too many? Could we? Maybe we can't. <laughs> I don't know if in a New York. No, absolutely. Not. We can barely tricky. do two. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing so much. Thank I hope you. you'll be a regular. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And um... everyone, I think <laughs> Jen's a natural. I think you should. I don't know. I don't go know. Go <laughs> on the, the Cuts podcast. You're... <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This was, this was really fun. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. This week's episode was edited by Rebecca Seidel. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.